This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father, I just pray that you would guide today, that your spirit rule, and bless us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. How to adapt as a missionary. You know, I would like to start um, with a quote. And this is um, from William Carey, uh, the one we talked about a bit yesterday. If it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. Amen? That's a powerful saying. If it's the duty of all people to hear and to believe then those of us who have the gospel, it's our duty to take it. There is one of those truths, again, that confront uh, the missionary. Uh, Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 7-15. This is kind of the basis of our study. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yes, you can turn in your Bibles. I can wait for you to find it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-15. Your version may be a little different. I think this is the New New King James. Um, Actually, this is King James. But um, if you have New King James... Another version. Okay, and it says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We'll talk a little bit about missionary trouble. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, rebound or redound to the glory of God. Amen? How do missionaries adapt to life in the mission field? How do they adapt? How do they cope? with culture shock, with the challenges that come to living in another culture. Uh, Some of you, as people who have traveled or who live in a culture outside of your home culture, know a lot of this and could teach this class and can add things to this. What we're going to do is we're going to go through this, and then we're going to, I'm sure this is a topic that's going to have a little bit of discussion, so at the end we'll ask and answer questions. But let's go through this. We need to remember, if we're going to adapt, the first thing we have to have in our heads is the treasure is in the message, not the messenger. Amen? Sometimes we get that backwards. We think that the messenger is the precious thing. But the Bible says, what we just read is, that we're just holding, we're just pots that are earthen, made of clay, that can tumble and break easily, that are weak. But what we hold is very precious. 
And that, that should do a lot for us. First of all, it should help us realize that uh, as missionaries, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have trouble adapting at times. We're imperfect. We're weak. We're clay vessels. We're not made of gold or silver. We're simple earthen vessels. But it also keeps us from getting proud if we see success. The success doesn't come from the vessel. It comes from the message and the Holy Spirit that accompanies the message. Um, Also, um, if we're going to adapt, we're going to have to learn to maintain our faith in God. And I put a little asterisk by that. We'll see why in just a moment. And then uh, a missionary that adapts well chooses, and I say chooses, chooses to concentrate the powers of his mind on the power of God to help him through. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as well. You remember the story of Judson. For those of you that were here yesterday, isn't that just, a, in some ways, a heart-rending story? The struggles he went through to plant the church, to sh- spread the gospel. Look at what he said. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. Nurturing faith in God. If a missionary is going to adapt and make it, you know, it's like that in life anywhere. But especially when you're in a culture that's not your own, seeking to share this this most precious precious message. Maybe I should go to French. (laughs) Maybe it'll come out a little easier. Um, One day, it was a normal Sunday, for us near the end of our mission service. We didn't know it was near the end, but we were coming to our final years. Our girls were getting older now, and they needed to come back to the, the U.S. Uh, to get education. We'd gone as far as we could with homeschooling and, and other things. It was time, college, high school, end of high school. And uh, my wife doesn't like me to share this story, but I'm going to share it, and at the end she'll, have, she'll doctor it up if I butcher it. So, <laughs> But... Um, I'm sitting at my desk doing some studying, preparing for some things, and my wife comes in, and she, Mark, Mark, sound of panic in her voice, and she holds up her hand, this hand. And as I look at it, it's ripped open from here down into the palm. She's crying and she's bleeding profusely. And I can look right down to the bone in the finger. I'm like, whoa. And I said, hey, we need to get you to the hospital right away. And she's crying and she's saying, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. We have so many friends that have died at the hospital. And she said, call Dr. Balde and have him come to the house. So... I called the doctor, and he came right over, very dear Muslim friend, a um, very devout Muslim. And uh, right there on our living room table, he performed surgery on my wife's hand. No anesthesia. Yeah. Well, if that drew a gasp from you, imagine what it was doing to my wife. And so, you know, my eyes are burning, you know, as I watch. I'm like, whoa. And we, praise the Lord, we had two or three nurses 
that we had, what, three, two nurses. We had three SMs, two nurses that were with us at that time, and, and they were able to help. Um, and, but I don't know how she held her hand there while with no anesthesia, this doctor is stitching several layers, three layers, inside, well, two, inside and outside, and then, and then this big gash in her hand. Um, and then he used, he didn't use, say, he didn't use saline water. He used um, purified water, but it wasn't saline. So it burned like a knife. Because you need saline that kind of is close to the body pH to keep it from burning. And she's sitting there crying and screaming, but holding, I don't have that much courage. I'd have punched the doctor out, I know it. And, and so she's going through the surgery, and, and it's all done, and he gives us some counsel, and he wraps her hand, and, and uh, you know, it's wrapped all the way up to here. And uh, he goes on, and, you know, he stays in contact with us, put her on antibiotics. He put her on the strongest antibiotics he could. Um, now, the way she got this terrible gash was our SM had, had a baby monkey she, she got when she came, and she'd been there a while, and... She left it with us. We had a good time with the monkey, but monkeys grow, and they get big. And this particular type of monkey is um, its the fastest land mammal in the world, just kind of an aside. It's a really fast monkey. It's called a patas monkey, it's, or in Africa they call it a red monkey. And it's a ground monkey. It can't climb trees, but it likes to stay on the ground. And um, not only that, but the, the male monkeys, the, the, especially the alpha males, have long fangs, really long fangs. Now, when she got it, she thought it was a female, but it was that small that you couldn't tell. Well, by the time she left, we knew it was a male, but he was fine. He was gentle. And, uh, but uh, we had gone away on furlough and come back, and something had changed in him. <clears throat> he'd become, <clears throat> he'd all, he was already big when we left. But when we came back, he'd become this big alpha male, and you could tell by an alpha male because they have the the white on their back, and their, I mean, he was a big monkey. Now, you know, probably to be a real alpha male, he would have had to have been with a troop and had to have been a leader of a troop, but this was a huge monkey. He was, when he stood up, you know, he stood about this tall. He was, you know, thin, but a tall monkey. Anyway, he, she had gone out just to change his water, and um, I guess he was nervous because he, he, every time he wanted water, he'd throw his bowl around. So she went out and, to change his water, and he attacked her and just tore into her hand with those fangs and just ripped it. So, fast forward now, she did the surgery and, and all of that, the doctor did. And uh, they, no matter, they had the, the very strongest antibiotics available in the country. That infection could not be controlled. It developed an infection. Um, I came home a few days later after church on Sabbath, and I found my wife holding her hand up like this from the pain, to keep the blood flow, you know, it was down, you feel the pressure, and the, um, and she's crying and singing to herself, trying to, to get over the pain. And it was, I mean, it was something to, to, to watch. Then I started to get a putrid odor. And so, you know, we did the best. The, 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 the antibiotics were so strong that they were putting into her that they, the blood vessels were beginning to break down. And not much uh, we could do. We went to the hospital after a couple more days, and they opened up the incision and cut away the necrotic tissue, the dead tissue, 
and um, tried to leave it open to, to breathe a little bit, wrapped it back up. And a few days later, this continued to worsen, and it's starting to smell. I'm starting to worry about gangrene, and we're doing all we can in country. And we saw the doctor one day, and he said, pray, let's pray to God that your wife can get on a plane today because it's critical. And so we were, praise God, we were able to get her evacuated. And um, it was uh, uh, an amazing chain of events. And, and I'll just share with you quickly so we don't get bogged down here. But uh, she got on the plane and uh, she's crying and, and trembling and suffering from the terrible throbbing pain. And uh, the, the stewardesses are coming by, can we help you? Now from Conakry, where we lived in Guinea, to Paris, it's a seven-hour flight overnight. Then from Paris to Atlanta, Cincinnati, Atlanta. Paris to Atlanta, it's another 10, 10, 11 hours. Then from Atlanta to Dallas, where she had to go, where there was a hospital waiting for her, it's another, what, two and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. But all along, you can see these tokens that God let her know, I'm with you. My daughters and I left her there. We, we left her at the, at the airport, and we... Let our wife go, my wife go, her, the mother go, um, str- under terrible, in terrible pain, get on this plane, but rushing, uh, hopefully to save, save her life. Because another thing you're worried about when someone has a terrible infection is it going systemic. And septicemia is a dangerous thing, to, a hard thing to control once it, once it uh, takes over. So anyway, um, she, she got on the plane and there, there was a gentleman sitting beside her who was very... Uh, sympathetic, very understanding. He, un- I guess the pain would go away for a while, and she could, you know, can I unwrap your food for you so you can eat? And, and he, he would do things like that. Um, she found out this man was from Iran, Iran, uh, a Muslim man. But when he got up and stood up, she understood why he was so sympathetic. He himself was handicapped. But a token, you know, God put him there to let her know that he was with her. Then, um, in the last leg of the trip at Atlanta, she's really suffering and in pain. And a lady comes, um, was this before you got on the plane? Uh, Okay, when she was on the plane, a lady comes to her and sits beside her in the plane and starts speaking to her in French. Do you speak French? And the lady's in an African outfit. And my wife says, yeah, I speak a little bit of French. And she began to ask questions. Well, oh, what's happened? What's wrong with you? My wife told her what had happened with the monkey and that she's going to get care. And she said, you know what? She looked at my wife and she said, you know what? She said, I was supposed to be on another flight. I don't know how I missed my flight. She said, but God, I know now why I'm here. God put me here on this flight. Maybe miss my last plane so I could sit next to you. And then she began to read the Bible to her. And my wife said, when? the lady started reading the Bible, the pain went away. Isn't that amazing? How do we adapt? So there, the story goes on and on and on. But all along, you can see that through this struggle that was threatening the life of my wife and her usefulness, God was putting tokens, letting her know that he was taking care of her. When we as missionaries face uh, difficult uh, times and if we're going to adapt, we need to feel certain 
that every trial that we face as a missionary has been ordered by God. If we are in God's hands and if we are doing God's work, He knows what's coming our way and He will take care of us and do what is His will in our lives. Amen? The missionaries need to develop a qu- the quality of endurance. And look at, look at this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And you see right at the bottom that quote that says, I can plod. That is the... Uh, Quote, that is a quote from William Carey. You know, William Carey, had, he was uh, convinced by what he saw the Moravians doing that missions needed to be a focus of the church. There were no mission societies in the church at that time whatsoever. And it was Carey, this, this shoe, uh, this cobbler, who was convicted that the church needed to dedicate resources to winning the world for Christ. And he would go, he went to uh, meetings of the church, he went to speak with church leaders, and he shared this burden of his, and one pastor said to him in in a meeting and said, Mr. Carey, sit down. If God, when God decides to reach the world, he will do it without your or my help. Rebuked him. And others told him things that would discourage him. He kept trying and kept... uh, pleading for uh, an awareness of missions. He finally wrote a, a, a book where he surveyed the whole world, the need of missionaries around the world, and he was the first one to say, by the grace of God, we can reach the world with the gospel. And, you know, people constantly discouraged him and told him, you know, you, you, you can't do this. His response was, well, maybe not, but I can plod. What does it mean to plod? Just to keep going at your pace every day, trying to learn to do it right. Trying to learn to do it right. And that's what Carrie said, the missionary needs to have this spirit, this, this ability, just to keep going every day, to endure. Thus Carrie wrote his famed inquiry into the obligations of the Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. In this masterpiece on missions, Carey answered arguments, surveyed the history of missions from apostolic times, surveyed the entire known world as to countries, size, populations, and religions. This was in the 1790s. And dealt with the practical application of how to reach the world for Christ. When he died, now remember, he said, I can plod. And you know, the session before we talked about effective missionaries. When he died at 73, he had seen the scriptures translated and printed into 40 languages. Amen. He had been a college professor, professor in India and had founded a college at Serampore in India. He had seen India open its doors to missionaries. He had seen an edict passed prohibiting sati, that was burning widows on the funeral pyres of their dead husbands. And he had seen converts for Christ. He said he could plot, he could endure. You know, that, that was tested in the life of Kerry because when he went to India to be a missionary, his wife and kids didn't want to go with him. But he was convicted that God had called them. So he went to get on the ship 
Well, he went, he said, come on, let's go. They'd been talking about this for months and planning. He said, come on, let's go. The wife and children refused to go with him. So he went down to the docks and got on the ship, and he came back the first time and said, would you please go with me? Nope. He went a second time, got on the boat. He came back. Would you go with me? He came back, I think, three times. Finally, the wife and the children went with him. But in India, over time, uh, his wife developed a mental illness, and she lost her reason. It was very difficult for him to live with. But he hung in there. How they were, I don't know their exact ages, but they were small at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he, he knew what he was talking about when he said, I know how to plod, how to hang in there, how to endure. On his deathbed, Carrie called out to a missionary friend. Dr. Duff, you've been speaking about Dr. Carrie. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carrie. Speak about Dr. Carey's God. That charge was symbolic of Carey, considered by many to be a unique figure towering above both contemporaries and successors in the ministry of missions. And here's, here's the key. Carey had developed this ability to plod through his faith in God. Like Judson said, everything in my mission life that comes to me, I'm out here doing God's work. I have to believe that God has ordered it, he understands it, and he has a purpose in it. Well, there are other more practical, not more practical, but other practical things that we can do um, to adapt as missionaries. Make friends. If there is a local church where a person is a missionary, it's important to make friends in the local church. Why? When I say local church, I don't mean in the town where a person is going to be or at the location where he is working, but in country. Why? Because friends who live in the culture can teach valuable life skills uh, for the new culture. When we, um, well, I'll just go through this list and I'll share a little point. Uh, They can give timely counsel and advice. And you know, the, the culture learning curve is that much less when you have brothers and sisters in Christ who share your faith who can help you over the, the, many of the cultural barriers that you have to deal with. They can help you understand the mind and the heart of the people. Even if they're not of the people group that you're going to, if they're from the general region or the culture, they have a lot more understanding than you will. And they can share with you. And then uh, they can be an answer to prayer in times of extremity. When we got to uh, Guinea, the country was just on the verge of civil war. Uh, Sierra Leone to the south was in the throes of a terrible, terrible civil war. Liberia was going through a civil war. And Guinea, the Conakry, the capital of Guinea where we lived, every night I would go, I could hear, and I would wake up, hear the machine guns. Soldiers shooting up in the air. I could look up, soldiers shooting tracer bullets, red bullets going out over the ocean. Um, we at 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 uh, seven thirty eight o'clock every night. Every night, the military put up checkpoints all over the city, so you had to be in your house before then if you didn't want to be harassed by drunk soldiers and pay bribes and be stopped and just be harassed. So we had friends. We uh, gained friends there in the local church who were um, refugees from Sierra Leone from the civil war there. Um, they had lived through the terrible civil war. And so their, their ability just to be 
calm and to say, you know what, this isn't such a big deal, or this is a big deal, this is dangerous, this is not dangerous. Their ability to know was very stabilizing to me. Because they were able to give counsel, they could, they, they, we knew if, some, if they were afraid of something, then we needed to be afraid. They weren't too worried about it, we needed to be cautious, but they taught us skills. So it's important to, to have friends that, that can help and do that, if at all possible. Um, there was one particular time when, uh, when the, the, the bandits were running through all the neighborhoods where, in the capital city where we lived for two years to learn language and culture. And um, I remember one time of, an acquaintance in the neighborhood came up to me. and well, well, actually, we had heard about bandits that had come to the house of the village chief. So they weren't of the neighborhood chief. They weren't discriminating. They were foreigners that lived in the neighborhood. They were nationals that lived in the neighborhood. We, we were, you know, just all lived there. And we'd, I'd heard the story of bandits that had come to the house of the chief. And there were, this chief had four wives and 20-some kids. And so they came to his house with machine guns. They, they came in. They said to all the kids, the kids were watching. There was electricity at that time. And they, the kids were all watching TV in the middle of the night. And they said, okay, all you kids, go to your rooms. Mothers, go. And they proceeded to empty the house out. Whatever value they found, they emptied it was just, just up the road from where we were, just, you know, just a stone's throw. And I listened to that, I said, whoa, that's scary. And I prayed. Well, a few, I don't know, if it was a week or two later, there's a little French mission hospital that was in our neighborhood, too. They had climbed, the bandits came back, they had climbed the walls one night, and with machine guns, they put, they put the guards on the ground, Put the machine guns to their heads. If you so much as move, we'll kill you. And then they rob the place again. Now I'm starting to really get worried. It's like, this is getting close. So an acquaintance from the neighborhood comes to me and says, Hey, Mark, I want you to be careful because the, the bandits are in the neighborhood now. Well, I knew that already. He didn't have to tell me that. And I said, Okay, 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 yeah, fine. Okay. And uh, I, I wanted to brush it off. I didn't want to hear it. So he says, hey, Mark, the bandits are in the neighborhood. Be, be careful. I said, yeah, yeah, thanks. I heard that, okay? And I'm like, I want to get away because I'm nervous. I'm starting to lose sleep, you know. And, and uh, finally, the third time, he says, Mark, be careful. Okay, I got the message. What do you think he was trying to tell me? You guys are next. Now, how did he know that? You guys are next. Be careful. So I said, oh, Lord, what have I gotten into? I came here. I'm here sharing your gospel. And here, uh, we haven't even been here a, a year, just a few months. And already, bandits want to attack us. And, and when they, the terrible things they do, and people are killed, and no one's ever arrested, and when they go to, if they do arrest someone, they're out of jail in a day or two. I said, oh man. And for the first time, I was afraid. I mean, not just a little bit. I was afraid. I was afraid for my wife. I was afraid for my two little daughters. What do you do? Well, you pray, right? And you trust God, right? Yeah, but I was still worried. 
So, well, yeah, I, I needed to grow in faith. I, I really did. But to make a long story short, it was rainy season. And what the bandits would do is they wait for these torrential rain downpours. You can, you can be outside in one of these torrential downpours. You have to yell at each other, you know, raise your voices to hear each other talk because the rain is so heavy. And so they'd wait for these torrential downpours. They'd, they'd come into the courtyard, come into the house. They'd, no one would bother. They'd shoot their guns. People are afraid. And uh, if they needed to, shoot their guns. And they, they killed people, and they, they did terrible things. And so at that time, we had people living in our, or helping us as guardians in, in the courtyard. And so one night, they said, hey, hey, we hear noises outside. So I'm coming outside. And, okay, if something happens, you stand over there. You stand over there. You stand Three nights in a row, I'm not getting any sleep. And, uh, you, know, you know, when you, you miss one night of sleep, you get a little frazzled. Well, imagine two or three nights. And uh, that the country is on edge. And the temptation is just to give up and go home. Get out of there. I didn't bargain for this. Lord, you didn't tell me this was part of the bargain. I came here to share the gospel, not to expose my family to this kind of stuff. Well, um, I remember the... The third night, I said, I remember leaning against the house. I said, Lord, I, I can't do this anymore. I was just almost in tears. Lord, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, it's raining. It's cold. It's, I'm starting to catch a cold. I'm sick. I'm like, I, I just can't handle this, Lord. I'm, I'm ready to quit. Do something. Do something. Or I'm just going to give up. I can't handle this. And we knew the the bandits were coming. I'd already gotten the message. And that, that let me know they were in cahoots with somebody powerful. They're going to announce that they're coming. And you can't go. Don't go to the police. I mean, they're probably with them. That's where they get the arms from. Anyway, I'm praying, and I'm praying out there in this cold rain and, and just hanging out and just tired and got this guy over there in this corner, this guy over there in this corner. What are we going to do? These guys come with AK-47s. So anyway, um, somewhere about midnight, 1230, I, we, at the gate, yeah, it made you jump. Well, it made us jump, too. And uh, big metal gate to the courtyard, because there in that country, all the yards are surrounded by, by walls. Um, and that's more, I think, a Muslim thing. And everybody jumped, whoa, was that the bandits? Then we hear a voice, Uncle Mark, Uncle Mark, Uncle Mark, it's me our close friends that we'd made. He said, uh, let us in, let us in. It was, I don't know, he and two or three other guys from the church. They said, we heard you guys have been having trouble with bandits, and we just came to, to spend the night with you in the courtyard. He said, Uncle Mark, you're tired, go get some sleep. God had answered the prayer. But you know what? They didn't bring guns. They brought their Bibles. They had a Bible study all night. Can you believe that? But you know, the bandits often are, are when, when, they're, when their cover is blown and, and when they realize there's a lot of people in the courtyard, because there were already three guys there, and now three or four other guys came. There's six or seven guys in the courtyard. I guess they gave up. Amen. Amen. I was at the end of my rope. God answered prayer, and it was through friends in the local church. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. He, the next morning, he told me, he said, you know, just outside of our house, and they lived in a little, a little two-room apartment 
in, an, in another courtyard way across town. It's a, it's a big city of two million people. He said, right outside of our, of our window in the road, the bandits, bandits have been active lately because rainy season is when they're active and doing a lot of robbing and, and hurting people. He said, and they had a shootout with the police right in the road outside of our window. This man left his family, got members of the church, and came over to our house to encourage us. They'd lived through this kind of thing before. They were all right. But, but left his family, was sure that they would be okay, and came and encouraged tired missionaries. Praise God. And that was because we had made friends in the local church, and they were able to teach us life skills and to help us. That was such a, a, a beautiful uh, lesson for me. An adaptable missionary always remembers that he is but an earthen vessel. And that means he should be, or he, she should be emptied of national pride. We're not going to take American or Western culture. We're going to take the gospel. That's a whole, two different things. He learns to appreciate the good that exists in others and in their culture. And sure, culture is a human thing. But no culture is perfect. But there are aspects of every culture that one can appreciate. And when we do that, um, we are more adaptable. Um, if we go to be missionaries and there's nothing we like about another culture and we never learn to adapt, uh, we won't, we, not only will we not be effective, but we won't stay very long. And finally, um, when we know we're earthen vessels, we accept that we will make mistakes and we can laugh about it or at least smile. Um, it may take a while. But we can learn to do it, especially language foul-ups. Um, I could tell you stories, but I won't. They're still embarrassing. <laughs> um, and, and also an adaptable missionary comes near to the people that he seeks to reach. And that was such a blessing to us, just time and time again in Guinea, because of a country that was unstable. Um, people would actually let us know when we, would, when we were in danger, because we came close, because we were friends. And so at one time when... When uh, the country was becoming very unstable, uh, our neighbors came to our colleagues and said, it's time for you to get your, your girl student missionaries out of the country. Because we come close. So they helped us to adapt, to be adaptable uh, when we come close to people. And adaptable missionary develops healthy ways of dealing with loneliness and homesickness. And I said healthy ways because there are unhealthy ways to deal with those things. And... Uh, one thing that I like to do is to uh, uh, sing to myself, not to anyone else. Um, I would think about mission stories, you know, the stories I've read, some of the things I've shared with you, that would remind me, you know, you, you don't have it very rough. Judson went to Myanmar or Burma, and his first furlough was after 33 years. You get to go home after 33 months. Big difference. And so those things help me. Um, also, we have to learn to deal with our feelings of distaste. There will be times in a, as a missionary when there's just something that just turns your stomach. How do you deal with that? Do you, do you turn against the people? Do you complain about the culture to the people? No. Well, one of the best ways is to pray about it and ask God to help us to understand and then also healthy ways of dealing with mental and emotional fatigue. And that's a challenge. All of these present more challenges than a new missionary realizes because some places, when we lived in Thailand, Thailand's a beautiful country. I mean, it's like, in some respects, it's like being a, 
on vacation all the time. Just because it's so beautiful and so lovely and, and so, um, so attractive to the eye. And maybe that's part of the danger is because it's such a beautiful place that missionaries can, can be at ease. Um, so, but then when we moved to, to Guinea, um, this is a place where that was on the verge of war. It was very unstable. And anywhere you go, there are just people everywhere. And not only that, but there was no touristy place to go to get away and to rest. So finding a, a place uh, to deal with mental and emotional fatigue uh, was a challenge. And I praise God for a wife that is able to make order when uh, it doesn't exist and to you know, kind of have a sanctuary at, at home. Uh, so you learn that those are skills that are developed over time. You don't get all the answers right away. But we must be intentional about learning those skills if we're going to be adaptable missionaries. And most important, I think, is an adaptable missionary makes Christ's method his model. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. This is a statement that's read often. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. So he mingled with people. He showed his sympathy for them. So he helped them. He did what he could to help them. He didn't ask, what's your religion or or what do you believe? He helped them. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and won their confidence. Then, and only then, he bade them, follow me. That's powerful, isn't it? There right there is the model of an effective and an adaptable missionary, one who's, who knows how to, to come close to people. And finally, the adaptable missionary remembers that all things that he does and suffers are for the sake of the unreached. Keep the goal in mind. Keep that ever before you. And, you know, we can deal with a lot more and do with a lot less than we ever imagined. God gives us grace. You know, when we first got to the mission field, it's like, man, how am I going to be able to do without electricity? Then, you know, we actually, I actually got to the point, I like electricity, but, but I got to the point where I looked forward to the times when the lights would go out um, and we as a family could, and with friends could sit around in the dark with our little, what do you call those lamps? Hurricane lamps? Yeah, the kerosene lamps. We could just sit with that and just sit and talk and have fun. And, you know, we Americans or we Westerners or we that live in the West, let's put it that way, have lost the art of just sitting around and talking and having a good time. Why? Because of the TV, the computer, and now our, our, our phones that are strapped to us at all times. I mean, times, we're, we're like slaves to all this stuff. And it's like, sit and talk? What do you mean? That's like so boring. But man, Africa taught us you could just sit and talk and have a good time. And you know, we, we'd go to the village, and uh, this is that village we, I told you about a day or two ago that had, where the father had four wives and 33 children, and the, the family was the, basically the village. And we, we would go and we'd established good friendships, and we went and spent some days there. And at nighttime, I mean, it's dark. There's no light in the village. At 6.30 at night, 7 o'clock, lights are gone, and the fire's, you know, blazing somewhere if it's a cooler part of the year. If not, people just come out, and, you know, someone will have a flashlight or a, or a lamp, and you sit on the little step of the hut, and all of a sudden, all the kids come around, and you're just talking and having fun. Does that sound fun? Not boring? No. It is fun. It is fun. So, the, the, you know, w- at first we think we're suffering. 
And then we, we start to get to enjoy it. And you're like, man, this is really living. And you come home and the TV's blaring. I mean, come back to the West and you're like, wow. Culture shock. Everything that we suffer and we have to go through, uh, God is doing it so that we can reach the unreached. That's what it is to be an adaptable missionary. Uh, Kathy, did you have something to share now? Did you want to share something on being an adaptable missionary? And then um, we've got, uh, we'll take some questions and give some answers here. Share um, a few things, practical things about um, adaptability. And I think of the food. Um, that's very practical. We have to eat in order to survive when we go to a new place. And sometimes that can be um, one of the most difficult things when you're going to a different, uh, a different country, to a different culture. And, you know, when you don't know the language and you go to the market for the first time, what do you say? How do you cook it? What do you do with it? Those are very difficult things. Um, so when it comes to adaptability, you have to go in there and you just have to really have an open mind. The smells. I remember when, I, when we first went to Thailand, um, in the capital of Bangkok, the smells were so repulsive that it was very hard for me I, yeah, to hardly eat at first. And after a while, you adapt to it. And before, you don't even smell it anymore. And you love the food. And Thai food has become one of my favorite foods. I just love the food. But it's something you have to decide and say, okay, I'm here, Lord. We're here. Help me to enjoy this food, help me to like it, because I didn't grow up eating rice. We would have rice maybe once a month with gravy. But when you have to eat it every day, rice and noodles, rice and noodles, I had gotten to the point to where, Lord, I don't want any more rice. Please, I don't, I don't even want to see rice. But now, guess what? I cook rice every single day. Um, and it's just something that the Lord helps you do when your mind is set on serving him and just allowing him to change your mind to adapt to the culture in which you're, you're living in. Another thing is adapting to the mindset of the people. Um, depending upon the culture that you're living in, I mean, you have a different mindset. You come with one mindset that you're accustomed to growing up in your environment, and you enter into a different mindset. How do you deal with that? People may look similar to you. They may not look similar to you, but their mindset is completely different. What do you do with that? I remember once, um, it was very difficult with language learning. And I have a master's degree, by the way. And this little old grandma came up to me once, um, illiterate grandma, I'm trying to learn the language. 
And she told me as I tried to speak the language, you are not intelligent at all. What, you don't even know this language? You can't even say, you can't even speak? Can you imagine what that would, would do to you? You know, it just strips you of all that you had. She said, you don't know anything. Why are you here? You don't know the language. You can't even say, you don't even know what this fruit is. You can't say anything. Whew, boy, I was just taken away. You know, my heart was going like this, boom, 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 boom. And I realized, wow. I have to adapt, and I have to realize right now, truly, I am a learner, right? I am a learner. I am in a different culture. All that I've known and had is stripped away. Um, My degrees or my intelligence means nothing. That I have to humble myself and be like this and to learn. And I did all I could. I told my husband, I am learning that Susu language. (laughs) And I did. I learned the Susu language. I learned to go into the markets and just speak Susu. And the ladies would just, hey, they would just start speaking and they would give me better prices than all the other ladies who couldn't speak Susu. You know, and they would say, come and sit down with me and let's chit chat and let's talk. And you were able to enter into the lives of the people. But if I had the mindset that, you know, I don't appreciate you telling me this. Do you know that I have this degree and that degree and you're illiterate? Where do you think it would have gotten me? Nowhere. And so as missionaries, we have to be able to adapt to all sorts of things. Um... And there's an, another um, story I wanted to share as adapting um, to the mindset. I remember when we were in Guinea, you know, we thought that, you know, we were coming to help the people. And, you know, we had a lot to offer and to share. And our mind was more so on, you know, spiritual. We want to help them spiritually. But people had a different mindset when it came to foreigners. You know, what we learned was they, they kind of saw us as dollar, walking dollar signs. You know, we just walk around. I mean, I don't even know if they really saw our faces or, you know, understood that we were people with feelings. Um, but, you know, they saw us as an opportunity. And that's something that we had to learn and adapt to that um, people necessarily aren't coming to be our friends and to have a a reciprocal relationship necessarily. Initially, um, they may be coming for something else. And we had to adapt to that. We had to realize, okay, we understand the mindset. We understand that this is a possibility. How, How can we internalize that? And to not take it personal. Because, you know, when you go into an area as pioneer missionaries, you're there all by yourself. You know, you don't have an established entity, institution, or anything. You're all by yourself. And you're lonely, and you want friends too. Um, But we had to adapt and realize, okay, we understand the mindset. It's not a 
personal um, thing that they're trying to trying to get us personally, and also the reason why they may be having this idea is because it's just a natural human thing. They don't know Christ. And the reason why we're there is to present Christ to them. And once we understood that, you know, it was okay. It was okay to us. We're here. Okay, they might try to get over on us. You know, we just have to present Christ's love anyway to them and pray that by um, heaping coals of fire with love on people, that that would change their hearts and their minds. And, and that's was something that we were, you know, able to do. And I think that that helped to enter into the lives of the people by not feeling offended by their, their worldview and the way that they saw things. But we as Christians can realize that outside of Christ, you can have any kind of worldview or mindset or worldly, worldly idea. And it's only Christ coming into the heart that changes that. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.